Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Great God of highest heaven, this is your word. And in this seemingly to us strange text, we see the continuing of a story that culminates in the cross that was just prayed about, in the empty tomb that was just sung about, and the reign of your son Jesus that we will all soon see. So help me as your servant, help your servants gathered here to hear and heed your word. Help any here that have not yet believed in that killed and risen and reigning Jesus to believe. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. How does one change? When you are other than you want to be, when you have habits in your life, do you want to see stop? When there's sin that clings closely to you, when your past is in constant remembrance, keeping you up at night, what must take place? for a transformation to happen so that we can be other than we are. If you've been with us thus far in Genesis, we've been noticing two parallel tracks. The first track is one of an older brother who constantly hinders or seemingly tries to hinder God's purposes. You remember this? Back in the story of Cain and Abel, the firstborn man is a murderer. And he kills his righteous younger brother from the same family. We saw Cain against Abel. We saw Esau against Jacob. And in last week's sermon, Pastor Dave preached, we saw Judah against Jacob. Judah against Jacob. If you're reading Genesis for the first time and you don't have the thousands of years of history to inform your reading of Genesis, Judah just seems like a fiend. He's another Esau. He's another Cain. Is there hope for Judah's? The second track, there's this hope starting in Genesis 3.15 that there is going to be the offspring of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent, Satan, even though he will be bruised, his heel will be bruised by Satan. Eve in Genesis 4.1 said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And the naming of Noah in Genesis 5.29 where his dad says, perhaps this will be the one that will relieve us from the curse of the ground. All through Genesis we've been tracking who's the chosen one? 
Who is the one who's going to come and bring relief from this curse? Who is this promised offspring? That's why there's drama and tension when Abraham and Sarah can't have kids. That's why there's drama and tension when Isaac and Rebekah can't have kids. That's why there's drama and tension when Jacob and Leah and Rachel can't have kids. It's because we're looking for this promised one to come, to continue this line. So these two questions, is there hope for older, wicked brothers? And is there hope for a promised line? Converge in a plot twist in Genesis 38. Why do we interrupt the story of Joseph for this strange, at least to us, story about Judah and Tamar? There's significant things going on in this text. And it's not only about the storyline of the Bible. There are significant things for us in this text. In the story of Judah and Tamar, we discover sharp, piercing questions for our own souls. How do we come not to despise it when we're confronted with our sin? How do we take hope when other people treat us like trash? Does God leave us when it gets hard? How much do we have to sin or how much do we have to be sinned against before God's done? Does that happen? What we find in today's text is that for all those to whom the promise is given, God acts against what they deserve. He does. And he bestows favor on them. His grace. And in shocking ways sometimes. So I'm going to pray again and we're going to start to walk through this text. So God, grant grace even as we read hard things in this text. Grant us grace to see you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So I hope you have a Bible in the, uh, the Bible that's in the seat back in front of you. Genesis 38 is found on page 30. Hope you turn there or scroll there on your phone or whatever else. If you're a visitor here today, why are we in Genesis 38? Was this just a random chapter? No, we're working our way through Genesis. And we believe that God's word is truly God's word from God. And so we preach through whole books of the Bible, including hard passages, including passages where may not see God as readily as at other passages. So I hope you are here along for this ride as we look at what God has for us. So you see the first point, chapter 38, verses 1 through 11, Judah's character is ruled by fear and passion. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. There's a couple things that should stand out to us. Probably stand out to us right away in this strange text. First, we have to note that Judah has realized the worst fears of his great-grandfather and grandfather. Do you remember that? Abraham sent away his son, don't take a wife from among the Canaanites. That was Isaac's hope for Jacob. Don't take a wife from among the Canaanites. And here's Judah, and what has he done? He's taken a wife from among the Canaanites, like Esau before him. A few chapters ago, we heard the story of Shechem in another hard, dark chapter where the Canaanites wanted to, by marriage and intermingling and, I think, corrupting the worship of uh, the, the Jacob and his offspring, they wanted to slowly, over generations, take over. And here, Judah, he's running right back to it. How are we going to get from Judah, ultimately, to David, ultimately, to Christ, not because Judah's a good guy. In fact, he comes across the opposite. This is the first thing we should notice. He's realized the worst fears of his ancestors. And second, Judah's kids act like Canaanites. God strikes Ur dead and then strikes Onan dead. And the details we get here about Onan uh, he refuses to fulfill this practice of Leverite marriage. It's ancient Near Eastern practice that's weird to us, but also included in God's law. Why is Onan marrying his brother's widow? Well, in one sense, what we have to understand for the ancient Near Eastern people, including the Jews, my individual preservation and survival is not mainly wrapped up in me. It's wrapped up in the continuing of a line from me. There's a sense of community and people that this is going to continue and it should continue. So, looking for this line of promise, looking for the line of a seed that's going to continue, we need to have this mindset. Onan should not be interested and just what he can get out of this, but the text tells us that's exactly what happens. He doesn't want to split the inheritance between his own offspring and the offspring of his brother. You remember at the end of Ruth? So the similar story where a man named Boaz fulfills the duty of a near relative to marry Ruth, that there's this other guy in Ruth 4.6. Uh, the text doesn't tell us his name. But he's like, oh, I want all the land. I want the other stuff from the inheritance. I'm the closest redeemer. Well, you have to marry, you know, your close relative's, you know, widow. No, 
I don't want to do that. It'll jeopardize my own inheritance. And that's what's happening here with Onan. Onan is being selfish and not providing a son for his brother. So this strange, strange practice has purposes in God's story. For our purpose today, we need to note that if you've been reading Genesis really carefully, every time the text kind of slows way down and talks about a childbearing or a struggle to conceive, this is about the promise of an offspring that's going to crush the head of a snake. Sarah's barrenness, Rebecca's barrenness, Leah's barrenness, Rachel's barrenness are all there because we're looking for a promised one. And so now, when we zoom in on Tamar is not going to have a child, if you're reading Genesis for the first time and you don't know anything, you should be like, wait, what's happening? This is unrighteous Judah. These are, is he going to be in the line of this? This promised seed? During the pandemic, I watched a sci-fi series that I will not name because I wouldn't recommend it. And the advertising of this sci-fi series listed an A-list Hollywood actor. It was the biggest deal. He's the one, you know, all the advertising like highlighted him. And at the end of the first episode, the last scene, they kill him. And he's off the scene. He doesn't come back. Like he's gone. I did not name it on purpose, Bethany, because also I don't think you should watch it. So... It's like this. You should be a little bit shocked that, hey, we got to the end of 37. It seems to be all about Joseph. And now Judah shows up. That's a big deal. What is happening with Judah? He's not even just another brother. He's the brother in chapter 37 that convinced his other brothers to sell innocent Joseph into slavery. So this isn't even like a, a big name getting ripped. This is like, this is like in season one, the bad guy, the big bad guy is somehow by season two or season three, a protagonist, a good guy. What's going on in Genesis 38? Sometimes God's provision for his redemption comes from the least likely places. I mean, this works out in our own lives too, Right? where someone comes and confronts us and they become a fast friend because faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes our relationships are restored when we had no hope for them. All of us long not to have our sin put in our face, but to help us save face instead. And this is what grace does. Grace from God comes and both confronts us and helps us save face. Can it be that Judah, this sexually immoral, fearful, and even we're going to find out angry man, that God's going to work in him? That God's going to do something? How does God's favor change Judah? How does God's favor change us? We're going to see. So, when we leave Judah after his second son's death, he's terrified of losing another son. Maybe thinking that Tamar is kind of like this bad luck charm. Like, get her away, lest more comes upon us. What should we expect at the end of verse 11? 
I'm not sure what to expect. Again, if you're reading this for the first time, this should feel a little cliffhanger, like a little cliffhanger to us. Like, what's, what's going to happen here? Anything could happen. There's no plot armor for the major characters. What's going to take place? What tragedy will come? So, we're going to see in verse 12, second point, Judah's contrast, the risky righteousness of Tamar. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and set, sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute that was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute's been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. What happens in the text is surprising. Tamar is not a passive person, but she emerges as an active person in this story of redemption. Not a spectator, but a participant. And she riskily pursues having kids through her father-in-law. So the righteousness of Tamar comes from what we're going to see later in the text. She's more righteous than I. And like many things in Genesis, this kind of righteousness is comparative, right? So this sexual sin that's being pursued is in light of the injustice she suffered. There's several things in the text to focus on. Look at what she does. First, she takes off her widow's garments and puts on a veil, likely what a prostitute would have worn or perhaps an unmarried woman would have worn in that culture. Second, she asks him for a pledge and gets the promise of a goat. I think there's a little bit of an echo here from the last chapter when Judah and his brothers used a goat's blood to deceive their dad. Do you remember all the way back in the story of Jacob where Jacob um, deceived his father, said that he was the firstborn when actually he was the secondborn, and then Lamech, his father-in-law, gave him, deceived him by giving him his firstborn, Leah, instead of the secondborn, Rachel. I think the same kind of irony is playing out here in Genesis. Judah, you're going to use a goat to deceive? You're going to get deceived as well, using the same instrument. But note, third, this pledge promise of a goat is insufficient. She wants something now, like she foresees how this story is going to go. 
She's anticipating perhaps being pregnant with her dead husband's father's child. Say that 10 times fast, right? Sounds like a daytime soap opera, like honestly. Like a background character that becomes part of the guest cast list and then becomes part of the main cast, Tamar emerges as a critical character in this story. Without her, there is no hope of redemption for Judah. We should see her riskiness, not only in the light of this immediate kind of, this is weird situational ethics, but in light of God's grand plan to use sinful humans to accomplish his righteous purposes for redemption. And along the way, not just use people, but redeem the people he uses at the same time. Note, Judah's third-born Shiloh was grown, but Judah had withheld him from Tamar, something that she saw, and it reminds us that Judah is still probably treating Tamar like this kind of bad talisman, this person who could get his family killed. So he's being duped. He thinks this is a pagan prostitute, and he gives in to his lust. And note what he doesn't do. He doesn't go back to Anayim on his own. He doesn't even go back. He sends a Canaanite to a Canaanite town to do Canaanite business. I think he realizes that he's done wrong and he's ashamed. I think he has a a sense of like, I've done something wrong here. Now, I think in light of what came later and a little bit of the hints uh, from the previous chapter, what comes later in chapter 43, 44, probably what he has in mind is he doesn't want to be seen in, light, in his dad's eyes as shame-worthy. He wants to be seen as righteous, perhaps to receive a blessing later. What do we see in here for us? When unkind words from my past come back to bite me, when the internet history that you thought had been cleared is found out, when you remake your resume and don't want to show those couple of jobs because you know that they're going to call those employers. When you look at how you've behaved towards your kids, when you look at how you've disrespected your parents, your past can catch up with you. And when it does, the God of grace is there. In the painful things, in the hard things, when we're confronted with our own sin. Or to put it another way, it's always easier to bring something into the light now rather than later. But when it gets brought into the light, rather soon or later, God is gracious to those who have believed. And he works in them to accomplish his good purposes. Like we're gonna see in this story. We just have to note, the Bible doesn't pull any punches about the the patriarchs. These are real people that really lived flawed, frail failures who sin and need a savior like me, like you. Now, of course, Judah is not only in contrast to Tamar, but he's also in contrast to his younger brother, Joseph. Okay, there's a couple interesting things here. Just as Abel and Cain, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, and Esau are all contrasted in Genesis, we should see some things here. First, 
Joseph went down to Egypt into slavery. At the end of 37, Judah went down into Canaan, pursuing his own sin. Judah caves into temptation with a woman. In fact, he pursues it. And Joseph, in the next chapter, is going to flee temptation with a woman. So is this contrast meant to show us? Hopeless for Judah. Let's keep going. Now the third point, Judah's choice, repent or react, starting in verse 34 through, I'm sorry, 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. Judah's response is rash judgment. And then he realizes he is the one that should be in the execution chair. This is not unlike one of his descendants. Remember the story of David? His sexual immorality, his rape, and his murder of Uriah the Hittite? And Nathan the prophet came to him and said, told him this parable, like what should happen to the person? And David says, the man should be killed. And Nathan says, you're the man. It's the same kind of thing happening to Judah. There's patterns in God's word that keep coming up again and again and in Genesis and beyond Genesis all the way to Revelation. We see these things again and again. There's also a really particular contrast here that I think is really important if you're reading the text carefully. The phrase, please identify whose these are, it's the exact same phrase used by the brothers in chapter 37, verse 32, where they asked Jacob to identify the brother's coat, to, to identify Joseph's coat. I don't think Tamar is aware of that story, but Judah's the one that probably said it. So as Tamar says, says this out loud, we should look at the text and go, look at how sovereign God is. I think what's happening is, is Judah's getting confronted. That's what I said. And that's part of his reaction here. Do you ever get what you don't deserve? In uh, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, remember that guy, finally got what he deserved after a whole movie of not getting what he deserved, right? He's sacrificing for others, it's finally paid back to him. He gets, it feels right at the end of the story. But what happens when somebody gets something they don't deserve? When it's mercy for a fiend and he suddenly becomes a friend. Joseph is kind of walking through his own personal Shawshank redemption right now. And at the same time, like Judas seems locked in like this Shakespearean tragedy of endless cycles of can you get out of this? And at this moment, 
seems that the cycle breaks. Breaks for the first time. So how does one change? One sees the goodness of God in the world, even in situations that seem out of control at first. One gets confronted with their own sin. And then you see the greatness and the goodness of God in the midst of much doing as grace comes and reminds you that God is the one who forgives sins, redeems sins, redeems us. That's how change comes. One truly sees God and thus truly sees self by grace and then embraces that. Or in the story of Judah, this, is, this just blows my mind. How does Judah go from in chapter 37 saying, I'm going to sell my half-brother to in chapter 44 saying, sell me for my half-brother. It's this text, I think. This is the moment where things begin to break for him and begin to change. So the Judah in the line of Christ, he gets redeemed first before he passes that on to others. Judah, God's redemption is for him. And then it's going to be through him. This is our story. God changes Judah from one willing to sell his half-brother to one willing to be sold for his half-brother. And God works a similar redemption in us. Sometimes over years, sometimes in an instant, he shows us our sin in contrast to his grace so that we too can participate in this. So now the last point. Judah's child, a preview of redemption in chapter 38, verses 27 through 30. When the time of Tamar's labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Like I mentioned, when we're zooming in on a birth narrative, and especially when we're zooming in on a birth narrative where the secondborn is favored over the firstborn against everything in that culture, we should stop and pay close attention. What do we see here? I think if you're reading Genesis carefully, you see it right away. You don't need it to be spelled out for you. The promised line for a seed is not going to continue through righteous and innocent Joseph, but unrighteous and guilty Judah. For those of us that are just familiar with the Bible story, you know, for perhaps all our lives, we're just like, oh, Judah. Yeah, that's who Jesus comes from. But if you're reading Genesis, this is shocking. Shocking that God is going to use through redemption, Judah. Scandalous even. This child, Perez, is in the line of Christ with a Canaanite mother who is blessed by God and becomes this kind of legendary figure. If you read Ruth chapter four, verse six and following, it's Perez that David is gonna come from. It's David that Christ will come from. God works through weak and unlikely, not what is strong and likely. Perez, second-born son. Judah, fourth-born son. Leah, second favorite 
wife? God takes what's least likely and turns it into something mighty. His grace falls on those who are not like Saul, firstborn, mighty, taller than all, but like David, seventh born, lower than his brothers, shepherd. He redeems his people and the situations they find themselves in. So in Genesis, this redemption reaches an apex in the blessing of Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12 to Judah. I invite you to turn there, turn forward with me to Genesis 49. Hear this blessing given by Jacob on his deathbed to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Do you hear just a few important things? Joseph said, I had a dream My brothers bowed down to me. Judah's brothers are going to bow before him. Tamar deceived Judah and took his staff from him, his scepter, so that the staff would never depart from Judah. And if we're looking for one who's going to crush the head of a snake, here's one who's going to put his hand on the neck of his enemies and later prophecies and numbers are going to tell us He is going to be the one that's going to put his foot on the head of his enemies. Look at this more when we get to Genesis 49 in July, a passage that I'm looking forward, uh, God willing, to preach. So in conclusion, Judah is on a path, as we all are. And rather than being discarded, God uses the circumstances of his life to confront him, to confound him, and finally, I think, confirm him in a way that will never be the same. God works in his people. He doesn't discard them. There's an Andrew Peterson song I love. Don't you want to thank someone if you're familiar with who Andrew Peterson is? With this line in it. When the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, then maybe it's a better thing. A better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. That's the story of Judah. That's our story. That's the story that comes to us through Christ. This journey we're on in Genesis shows again and again, God works in the lives of those to whom he shows favor that they don't get to earn. They don't get to earn it. He's not mentioned much in this story, but it does not mean he's not present. You might not sense him right now in your life circumstances. It does not mean he's not present 
And it doesn't mean he's not for you. He places his favor on the recipients of his promise and walks with them. His presence to bless them. The descendants of Jacob are a rough lot. And God is not in the business of just finding the diamonds in the rough, but coming down and changing what's rough into diamonds for his glory. And he's in the rough with us too. This is what brings us to the table of communion. I invite the worship team to come on up. There's a song that I had hoped to sing because I thought of it about five minutes before I came up here. (laughs) I forgot to pass it on to them. You know it probably. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord freely bestowed on all who believe. Then maybe this is later confusing in my head, but you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? That's communion. We come to a table ready to come into God's presence, not because we feel we're worthy, but because we know we're not. We know we're not, and yet God comes close to us in the cross of Jesus. If you're here today, and this story of the cross of Jesus seems foreign, alien to you, it's just a a macrocosm of this story in Judah, the story of Judah. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in order that we might have a right standing with him. He rose from the dead. He broke death, never to die again, so that if you place your faith in him this morning and receive his grace, you'll never die, truly. Death will only be a pathway to more, to grace. So, uh, I invite, stick your hand up if you'd rather, uh, if you want to stay in your seat and just meditate over communion, or if you're unable to come up here, just stick your hand up. The ushers will uh, distribute the elements to you. Before we come forward, let me just say to you, if this morning you have not yet trusted in Christ and received that grace, this is not a meal um, for you. But this very morning, you can believe. Come talk to me afterwards. Talk to anyone who's nearby you, and if they're not a Christian, say, well, let's go find somebody who is and ask them what this is about. If this morning you're here and you're harboring sin, and you're unwilling to bring it into the light, you'd rather have your sin, you'd rather cling to it than cling to Jesus. Oh, please, make a commitment in your heart to turn from that and turn to Jesus. Please, please, don't go home clinging to your sin. Jesus, his burden is easy. His yoke is light. You can come to him, even this morning. And if you are uh, embittered against other believers, especially within this body, this is a family meal meant to display unity between believers. 
Make a commitment in your heart if you are embittered against others to go seek them, even in this room, and make it right after the service. So I'm going to read the words of institution. The worship team is going to come up, and you can come as you are ready. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.